We thank God. Amen. We thank God for that lovely one. I had to play that as an oldie. More about Jesus. Amen. I used to sing that as a teenage Christian. Got converted at 18. All up in the early Christian life. Um, we used to go down after church. Sit on the rocks in Harbor View there. On, on the beach. And, um, and just look out with some other um, young men, Christian men, and just talk about the scriptures and and about the Lord and so on. After church, we would have little groups huddling and they were talking about Jesus, talking about the scriptures, sharing with each other. We'd walk home slowly, but then we didn't live far, you know, um, and didn't. not everybody drove and we'd walk home slowly in, in small groups and just, just start chatting and sharing. And then when we reached certain homes, we would stand up at the gate and talk a bit longer again. That was like the average way on a weekly basis of our Christian life that laid a good foundation, you know? And today's business, we miss that kind of, after, after service with many times, you now people don't talk about scripture, they talk about other things. And I'm not talking about everybody, but that is a kind of commonality you find. As we embark on our study tonight, I'm going to do things a little differently. I haven't done this for a while. Um, I will be dealing near the end with um, the first John passage, chapter two, looking at one particular word. Um, but I will be dealing with some concerns to create a kind of um, platform on how we can be um, relevant in dealing with people as we are reconcilers. We, we have the ministry of reconciliation, we have the message of reconciliation, and God through his wisdom is, is teaching us the, the method of reconciliation as his spirit informs our our approaches. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for tonight's study. Lord, I de depend on you for um, the edification of your people. I'm depending on you, Lord, for um, the infusion of your spirit, the spirit of truth, to lead us into all truth. Lord, everything I have in study and preparation is not my creativity nor my doing, but it's your deposit and your, your, your leading of your spirit into all truth. Your spirit not only convicts us of sin, but convinces of, convinces us of the truth that we are and who we are in Christ Jesus um, through the scriptures. I pray that this will be not just information, but information that leads to transformation. Um, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I'll be dealing, first of all, I touched on this last week, I think, or, or the week before, and I'll be dealing with um, a particular concern of some prevalent ministers in our society today. Let us note right off the 
the initial words I have to make here, that there are only two religions in the world. Only two religions in the world. There is, I wouldn't call it Christianity a religion, but an, an, a, a relationship. But just for argument's sake, um, to make a contrast, there's what is called divine accomplishment, and there's what is called the, the religion of human achievement. Every other religion on this planet we call Earth is a religion of human achievements. They are created by humans to create a God that is apart from the God revealed as a creator, um, redeemer God. And that kind of God is a false God. It's not even worthy of the, the name G-O-D. Um, and it is also idolatry. Idolatry, every other religion is practicing idolatry. And why I say that is because um, no, all other religions, and we have to be careful because we get a pushback in Christianity where a lot of Christians and even pastors do not fully understand or grasp uh, um, the whole understanding of, of the human responsibility, right? And I'm going somewhere with this. Ephesians chapter two, for example, I'll just read a few verses there and to show you the, um, the plight of mankind, of humanity, show you the um, deficit. We're told in Romans um, chapter five, that while we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Where we had no ability, not physical strength, but no spiritual or moral ability to begin to reach up to God. That is what? No one, there's none that seek it after God. No, not one. Right? Because we are, we, we, we desire and long for things apart from God because our very, the for core of our nature and our will um, have been affected and warped and distorted by the fall. And so let us remember that. Now, here is what the Bible teaches. We know it quite well, but I'm going to put up a, a contextual understanding on it. We know that the Bible in Ephesians chapter 2 says, it tells you the state of every person born on this planet. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That is the environment and the context and the realm of spiritual death and physical death eventually, which we have to die. You were dead talking to the, 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 um, the, 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 the believers in Ephesus about um, their condition before they were converted. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to walk when you conformed to the ways of this world and 
of the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the children of disobedience. So right there in verses one and two, we get a kind of past tense, present tense emphasis. Past tense, you were dead. Past tense, in which you used to walk when you conform past tense to the ways the Bible said, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. The, the ways of this world, this world here means the, the evil system that, that influences people, not the people per se in the world, because God so loved the world, and we are not to love the world. It is in that world, in that bad sense of the, the evil. Uh, you know, and it says, um, in, in the world, and conform to the world, and of the ruler of the power of the air. Note all of those offs. The ruler, not rulers, but the ruler. It's talking about Satan here. The power, the Antichrist spirit um, in the air. And the air means the atmosphere, the realm between heaven and earth, if you may. Right? The spirit who personalized is now, present tense, at work in the sons or children of disobedience. Their hearts are bent on disobedience and rebellion. And he goes back again to the past tense in verse 3. All of us, including Paul himself, although he was very religious, all of us lived among them at one time. Past tense again. Fulfilling. That means you went all the way. Anything the desire tells you to do, you, you, find a, you found a way to, to, to get it done. Fulfilling the cravings of our sin nature and indulging in its desires. You fulfill the craving, but you also indulge. You, you find pleasure in. You look forward to. You create the context to meet that fulfillment. Indulging in its desires and thoughts. So desires and thoughts are put together here as partners in what drives people to do the evil that they do. We hear all the atrocities happening in Jamaica. This is not only with sexuality. This has to do with murder. This has to do with demon worshiping and all the things that you see happening in Jamaica and all over the world. Like the rest, like the rest, Paul is making a contrast now of these two categories. Like the rest, we were by nature children of wrath. By nature. Why this is important is because later on, I'm going to show this change. You might say, Pastor, we past this. This is baby stuff we're talking about. No, not really. Not really. I'm going somewhere with this. It is at this point. I want to mix in something here. Kenneth Copeland, in his early ministry, and just recently, I think as in 2021, have been making, have been making, he has been making some statements. 
And one of the statements he has made repeatedly, he hasn't changed. He would say, who is the biggest loser in the whole world? Or who is the biggest failure? And you might say, well, Adam and Eve are, um, you know, I would go through a list of all kind of things, mankind and, and, and the devil and you name it. But, but he said, no, no. Kenneth Copeland said that God is the biggest loser. God is the biggest failure. That is what Kenneth Copeland says. That's his doctrine and others who hold to his belief. And then he says, I can prove it from, from the Bible, he says. He says, I share this with you sometime, but I'll say it again here. He says, you know, in heaven, God lost his, his chief angel, Lucifer. Then a third of the angels fell with him. Again, that's a big loss. He said, that's a big, a lot of real estate. Those are his actual words. And then his, his image bearer, Adam and Eve, he lost them to sin and, and Satan. And then all of those who will be going to hell, he lost them again. And um, which is supposed to be the majority instead of the few. And he goes on a list of all the conditions and situations and came up with this solution or the total answer to that question. And it is that um, who is the biggest loser? Who is the biggest failure? And Kenneth Copeland's answer is God. Now, God gave man free will, and I'm going to get into that tonight. But this is his view of God. And it sounds, it gets your attention, and it seems to be logical in its, in its, in its um, itemizing of those things. But it's flawed because the premise is wrong. The premise is wrong. The God of the Bible does not need creation to be God. You have to start from there. God, God is God and has always been God before there was a creation. So how could God feel? Right? Um, God himself has conquered all the forces of evil already. It's just like a um, it's like you hit an animal and um, strike an animal in the head and it's fluttering, fluttering, but it has a death blow already. That happened already in Calvary. So his whole view of the redemption, the efficacy of the death of Christ and so on, and the resurrection, which is the victory over the death and the curse and all of these things. And um, there'll be, there'll be um, the end will show you that um, that the home of righteousness, new heaven and new earth, we're in dwelleth righteousness. There'll be no more death, no more sorrow. If he read the back of the book and either before the book even was written, he would understand that God, the word loser and God are a contradiction in terms, are contradictions in terms. 
The word failure and God are contradictions. Um, J.B. Phillips wrote a book, little book ago, Your God is Too Small. And what he meant is that you have made, brought God down to your human understanding where you can, you can comprehend God. Nobody can comprehend God. We can only apprehend God and his attributes. Because when you apprehend something is when you have a grasp of it enough to know what it is like. But to comprehend is when you, you fully have it like in a, all of it is grasped, clasped in your hands. Nobody can do that to God. That's why Jesus has a name that is known only to him. And so in our Ephesians passage, we see, we see that God in verse, verse 4. Verse 4 says, but because of his great love for us. You see, love is again permeating this. His love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, not poor, but rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. You see, it is God who made this possible. As I started off, all other religions is man's um, achievements. But Christianity is God's accomplishment. God has accomplished something that man cannot do. The same God who made everything out of nothing, the same God now identifies himself with us and he made us alive. So I ask a question and people might say, oh, Pastor Archer is wrong and we're so, we so anthropocentric with our salvation that we fail to be Christocentric. There is a part of anthropology in a sense, but not anthropocentrism. And that is that when you are um, a born again Christian, you respond in faith. And the word faith, the etymology of the word faith, pistis, means divine persuasion. In other words, you are persuaded by the being of God through the scriptures and the revelation of God that you now put your trust in what God, who God is primarily, that's a person, and then what God has accomplished for our benefit. That itself, my friends and brethren, that is Christianity. We're going to see that later on. I'm going to pose a way that you can spread the gospel to people by asking the right questions. And so, because, but because, because of his great love, not just love, great love for us, God so loved the world, God is, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. So regeneration comes before faith. We did not have faith and then we were made alive, but we are made alive and then regeneration came about. Now, we can't understand and explain everything, and I won't get into predestination, election, and all those things right now. Those are other studies that, you know, people are still baffled about. But the scriptures teach quite clearly um, that um, who made us alive with Christ, within Christ, with Christ. So therefore, is not made us alive. So Christ is central 
You cannot. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the kind of life he's talking about. A life in knowing the Father is eternal life. Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our trespasses. So therefore, death and life are contrasted here. So therefore, he made us alive with Christ when we're dead. He repeats himself in verse 5 to make emphasis as he did in verse 1. You were dead in trespasses and sin. In verse 5, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our trespasses. But it is by grace you have been saved. Grace is enablement, not only favor. So the, the, the grace is, is, is actually a progressive um, parallelism for made us alive. To make alive is to enable you to have life. And so it is by grace, which is charis. Why it means primarily enablement? Because Jesus Christ is the anointed one, the same cognate, the same root of word for anoint and Christ, Christos, is the same root we get our word for grace, charis, kara, and so on. They come from the same root word, which means um, God shows favor to us through enablement. Enablement is the manifestation of the favor that God shows for us, right? And so um, when Jesus Christ is anointed one, well, how do you fit that in now? It means then with Christology, it means then that the son became human so that humanity can be enabled to be authentically human. And that is the Adam, the true Adam, Christ Jesus. And that is important for us to understand. Let me repeat it. The son doesn't need to be enabled because the son is God already. Putting it another way, but the son became human, didn't come upon a human. That is what Serinthus taught, which was a form of Gnosticism, by the way, which I've been saying for some time now that um, Joel Osteen and his wife and that whole group, that's what they teach, that the man Christ Jesus, the spirit, because of the, the, the false doctrine of um, Serinthianism, um, where you have different emanations coming down from, from God to man. Well, well, this one of the emanations was this, this, this spirit, Christ spirit, that came upon the man Jesus at his baptism and then left him just before his crucifixion. That's a doctrine of adoptionism. Different than when we're adopted as children of God, but the doctrine of adoptionism. And it's a heresy of, of Serinthian Gnosticism that is taught by Joel Osteen. And I don't even believe that he, he knows that's what he's teaching. It's a form of neo-Gnosticism. Okay? Not the, not the Christ of the Bible, that is. And so the Christ of the Bible became human, a true human from conception in Mary, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, immaculate conception. 
The magic conception because Mary was pure, the magic conception is, be is because of the conception of Jesus. That, that's technically Catholics try to turn that around. By the way, Roman Catholicism just came up with some information trying to show that the Protestant teaching of, of salvation by grace alone and so on through faith, but the faith that, that saves it not alone. This is what Protestants te taught in the 16th century. They are now saying that when using the James passage to contradict all of that, when you, it's, it's, it, 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 they're, not, they're not against each other. Um, grace saves us first, but the grace that saves us, we are saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves us is not alone because the grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and so on and so on and live righteously in this present world according to what we're taught that in, in the book of Titus. So it's important now to understand that Jesus Christ, the son, became human without ceasing to be God, as I always say, to um, enable and, and the son becoming human, that is the Christ. The anointed human, the enabled human, enabled to, to have authentic fellowship with God and to have authentic relationship with humans. That is why he grew and found favor with God and man. And as I always say, that grow means pro ecopto, a double prefix. Pro means to, to advance, bring forward. And then ek means from the center of, from our, the midst of our being, he beat his way. And kopto means to chop like a chopper. Just figure out where helicopter from. To chop, to beat, and to reshape our humanity from inside out. And the final blow came at the cross. And so, so therefore, the, the son himself becomes human. And that human is called Jesus, the anointed, the enabled human. Enabled now to have the right relationship between God and man. That's why he's the mediator between God and man. The man, the anthropos, Christ Jesus. And so having said that, this whole context here, he raised us with Christ. He's now, Christ now gathers us up in his humanity to share this enabling. So Christ in Galatians, uh, there's a section in Galatians, we, we have time to get into it now, there's a section in Galatians which talks about grace and, and the, the context seems to point to that grace is the person Jesus Christ. He is the enabled one. He is God's favor to mankind where God himself takes this, this form. And when he, when he does that, he, he know, we are now in Christ. And you know, Paul said, yet not I but Christ. Because we are now enabled by the by the by, by the anointed one to have that anointing, which first John chapter two says, you have an anointing from the Holy One. We are now enabled to live the authentic Christian life. And that is what God has predestinated us to be conformed to the image of Christ and so on. So we see here that God raised us up. This is with his, not his um, resurrection, 
not the resurrection that we have, but this is the coronation, the ascension. He raised us up with Christ and seated us. That's why we're seated in heaven and place in Christ Jesus. That means we are at a place where authentic mankind ought to be with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So in Christ Jesus, because he is anointed human, the enabled human, the grace. We are told in St. John chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth, full of enablement, all that it means to be an authentic human, better than even Adam and Eve. That's why Jesus Christ, he overcame all the temptations that we sin that Adam and Eve didn't. And it's full of truth because he's a true God and he's a true authentic human without ceasing to regard. In the heavenly realms, in order that in the coming ages, so this is not something that happened in the past, but it has eternal ramifications beyond what we would ever imagine. That in the coming, in order that there's purpose here now, purpose statement, in order that in the coming ages, he might display the surpassing riches of his grace. You see, grace is mentioned here again. The same grace, for by grace have you been saved through faith. By Christ have you been saved through faith. By this enablement. It's wanting to, 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 get, to, to get favor. But what is that favor? What's the content of that favor? The content of that favor is the enablement to be authentically human in Christ. And in the last part of verse 7, demonstrated by his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's again another offshoot of grace, his kindness, related word again. Up to verse 10, we're going to stop. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. You see there? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, let me just pause here a bit. And get a little closer to unpack this. Now, bear with me. This is very important for us to understand. Right? Um, now, when you look at this verse, verse 8, we always quote that. And it's so not if it is our faith we're exercising. But we're going to see that it's, um, it's much more, much deeper than that, I should say. By grace have you been saved through faith. And the word for through here is dear, where it means I'm back and forth thoroughly, successfully across from. Is a prefix which literally means successfully brought over to the other side. That's where you get the word diaphragm from. It's not just through. It means through from one place to the next. Who did this? Our faith or was it? No. It's God. That is what faith is. It's this persuasion that anchors our trust where Christ now carries us in himself from where we are to where we ought to be positionally. It is true this. And not of ourselves. No, if it was faith from our part, apart from God itself, then it would be of ourselves. But it's not. Not of ourselves. What is not of ourselves? It is his faith 
right? And the enablement that comes through it from God. It is the gift of God, not of works. If faith was just from us, then it would be a work. And not a gift. Many of us think that the gift is the grace and the faith is our response. No, it's not quite like that. The structure of the Greek text doesn't say that. The grace is the enablement, the enablement of God um, in Christ Jesus, which gathers us up and, and, and quickens us and gives us life. So again, because it is God who gives the life and not our faith that gives us the life. Because we were dead. I'm not, I'm not trying to confuse you, brethren. I'm, it sounds simple, but it's not as simple, if you know what I mean. It's profoundly rich. It's a gift. What is the gift? The gift is, is, um, is, is faith that is true grace. In other words, grace that enables this faith, this response of trust. Because, as I said, the etymology of the word faith is divine persuasion. It's God actually bringing this persuasion through the spirit for us to trust in him. And, of course, Galatians chapter, chapter, um, chapter 2, verse 16 and verse 20. Now, let me turn to that because I dealt with this a couple of years ago. But I think it's important for me to unpack this here now. Now. I'm going to look at, I'm going to show you something here in, in Galatians chapter, chapter two. And looking at verse 16. And then when, what I'm going to do is break down three prepositions um, in this context. And this is important for us to grasp because it changes our whole mindset of what this is all about. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Bring up my stuff here. It says, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith in Jesus Christ. So that too, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by the faith in Jesus and not by the works of the law. For because of the works of the law, no one will be justified. Here is where the NIV, I think, is trying to interpret and miss the point. If you notice, the NIV says here, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. I would read it faith of Jesus Christ. That's what the Greek says. It's a, it's a subjective genitive, not an objective genitive, as they interpret it here. And, and then it says, so, so we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ. No, that's okay there. That belongs there. But if you say it's not just by, by faith in Jesus Christ, and then you, the next verse said, so we put our faith in Jesus Christ. That's a contradiction right there. <laughs> so therefore, it should be justified by the faith, just by the, by the faith 
of Jesus, but by the faith of Jesus, we are justified so that we have put our faith in Jesus. That belongs to you then properly. That we may justified by, by the faith in Jesus. It's just a repetition there again. All three things not supposed to be, but if by the faith of Jesus Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And if you say that it is a faith is a work and not a gift, then it's a contradiction of the whole passage here. Because faith cannot be a work, it's a gift. What kind of gift? It's a gift of Christ, who is the faith of, Christ, of Jesus. Now, let me go a little deeper here. I'm going to read it from the King James Version. Here's what the King James has it right in this context here. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. That's what the King James has. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ. No, that is still. So that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. You see that? You see the play there now? That is how it's supposed to be. And so, let me break it down even deeper to make my point. When it says, knowing nevertheless that we're justified by, by the faith, by the word, by the works, it means, the word by means ek, not through, but means from within, from within doing the works. Ek is used there, not, not dear through, or, or, and so on. So therefore, the best translation is, um, man is not justified within the works of the law. But um, if not through faith, through faith in Christ. Now that word through faith is dear, which means on account of, and it speaks about the faith of Christ, on account of the faith of Christ. We might say, Pastor, why, why could, if Jesus Christ is God, why would you have to have faith? Because Jesus Christ is the enabled human who believes in God the Father. My God, your God, my Father, your Father, my God, your God. You see that all throughout the scriptures where Jesus now takes our humanity. We see it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and father we miss the god part he's a god the father is a god of our lord jesus christ and the father is the father of our lord jesus christ the father of our lord jesus christ by by being in a member of the godhead not by adoption we are brought in ephesians 1 verse 5 by adoption from a legal perspective although we are born again from a filial perspective and so God covers all the bases of our human understanding from the born again aspect, which is the filial, we are born into the family of God. And from a legal perspective where we are now adopted, we are brought in through being born again. But from another perspective, it's called adoption. And we'll deal with that in a bit. And so the faith, um, but through the faith, from Jesus Christ. And so um, 
there have been books written about the faith of Jesus Christ. Right? And um, I won't get into that right now. And some translations have the faith from Jesus. No, not the faith in, not in that context here, but from or of Jesus. It's a, it's a, it's a um, subjective genitive. From Jesus is the same point made because it means it's coming from Jesus. Jesus is the one exercising it. And he gathers us up to share in his trust for the Father, to the Father. That's why he said to my God and your God. That would not make any sense unless he is the faith of Jesus. Even on the cross, I said, he believed in God. Let God deliver him now. And even right now, um, he is interceding for us. And he is, he is the um, ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. He is the liturgos, the liturgy. The laos and the arm, um, the air gone, the, the, the right representative and gathering of people in himself to have the most accurate encounter and, and relationship with the father. So the same relationship that the father and the son eternally have had, and uh, um, is the son now becomes human. And gathers us up to share in that face-to-face -face relationship with the Father. And yet we're not God. We're told in 2 Corinthians again, I think verse chapter 4, somewhere in the verse 6, it says, um, the light shine out of darkness has shone in our heart in the face of Christ Jesus. And we're told again in, in Corinthians, we with unveiled face, faces, some translation, but is in, the, in the Greek is a collective singular noun. We with unveiled face. What face? The one face of the encounter with the father and the son. But not the father and the son, but the son as a human. Not define our humanity, but God with God, all things are possible. And only he can, God can do this. Where he has this relationship with the father, with, him, with, with the son. And yet still we are gathered up to share in his humanity. God's new humanity in Christ. See, that's why he's called the, the last Adam. Just as we share Adam's humanity, we share the authentic humanity of Christ. And so this is what grace is all about. And so um, um, Galatians here says, um, Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And that, that part about justified by faith now, Again, the word by, use here the Greek word ek. It's not, by is not the best translation. But we have been justified from out of faith. From out of whose faith? From out of the Christ's faith. The faith of Jesus. Ek, preposition means um out from towards from within from within the faith of jesus christ the authentic human exercising and the father so god substituted himself as christ jesus coming to take on our humanity and so to do what we could not do with ourselves we're without strength and so on and gathers us up to share that through the spirit of god and, and that is why 
um, we share in, in, the, in, the, in the humanity of Jesus Christ. We see this in Hebrews chapter two. He, we call us his brethren, but yes, it is God. That is the point. He's not ashamed to call us brethren because we share his sonship through being born into the family of God and from a legal perspective through adoption. Okay? And so because we are not naturally children of God and that's why the adoption factor comes in. But yet still, let me just say it here in case I run out of time. Adoption is not selective as how, you know, you adopt somebody that is special and so on. You wouldn't adopt somebody with Down syndrome and all of that. You don't find it happening. They examine the background and everything. God doesn't do this. Look at, look at Corinthians. Just see that we were the least among everybody else. And you said God has chosen us in Christ Jesus. And so we find that in the scriptures, we find that adoption was done in the Greek and the Roman context where um, the firstborn had special privileges over against the adopted one. And the adopted one had to wait until they reached old before they could benefit. But when in, the, in the biblical understanding of adoption, that was totally changed. Where adoption means that you have equal right as a natural born. That's why we share in Christ humanity and benefits and privileges. And yet we're adopted. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. You see it there. Read it. Right? The predestined adoption of children and so on. And, um, and then also, we, we have the same privileges as an adult person who is adopted or to get a birthright and all these things. So we share in all of the inheritance of the people of God. We see this in Ephesians chapter 3. And verse 6. Um, you see? And so Ephesians 3, 6. You see three things mentioned there. Went ahead of myself. And those three things are that we are brought into the family of God. Um, we are shearers with, with Israel. Partakers with the same promises and so on and so on. Verse 6 of Ephesians 3. Mark it in your Bible. God has transcended and crossed all cultures, crossed all ethnicities, um, crossed all racial barriers. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor anybody. We're all one and equal in Christ Jesus because God's people are one and that gathered up in Christ Jesus. And so we are told um, in, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, you see where the King James Version is right. And you see the same thing in verse 22. Because in verse 20, he said, I, um, um, I've been crucified with Christ. We share in Christ's, Christ's identity. Um, yet um, I've been crucified with Christ, yet, not I, yet, yet I live, yet not I but Christ. You see, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Of course. Most translations read the faith in the Son of God. They take it as, a, as, a, um, as an objective genitive, but it's a subjective genitive. The context demands that. And so we are shearers 
of the faith and the trust that the son has in the father, right? As an authentic human, that's why we're conformed to the image of his son and so on. So let me get back to now um, the, the text here concerning, finish up at Ephesians chapter two, and then I go on to something else here now. So in Ephesians chapter two, um, looking at verse 10, where we, we finish off there, we see where God has brought us into participation. Ephesians 2 verse 8, yes, for by grace have you been saved through faith, not out of the gift of God. Um, and it says, not of works, verse 9. so that no one can boast. So it doesn't come from us. And verse 10, for we are God's handiwork. It's God's doing. Created in Christ Jesus. That's the context of our new birth experience, God's new humanity through the anointing. And, and, and to do good works, not just aesthetic works, what's beneficial, functionality as we are partakers of the age to come so the value and the worth and the principles of the age to come we have already in us as god's new humanity that is why we love the way that god loves that's why we forgive and accept one another all of these are not just ethical principles they are actually principles that govern our citizenship that is already in heaven. I always talk about, um, about um, life will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I formulated these three things from an exegetical study of that statement, that um, we have been brought into what is called spiritual alignment through the spirit as we mature and in Christ and so on. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven, spiritual alignment. Then we're brought into spiritual assignment. That will be done. Who's going to do it? We're assigned to live a certain way and for a certain purpose in that regard. And then finally, spiritual refinement. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not just as it shall be alone, but as it is in heaven. So that's the refinement, the maturation, if you need me, as how we ought to be in Christ, the body of Christ growing up, that's refined humanity, not transhumanity, but refined humanity in Christ to become really authentic Jesus Christ people, God's authentic humanity. And so we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus within the context, the realm, the sphere of Christ's existence to do, so there's functionality, action, good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So this is not by accident, it's by purpose and intentionality. And so therefore it will be done. God is going to do it somehow the Lord love each, we Lord love each chastens that we might bring forth good works. And so when Christians start to, this is a part of our spiritual maturation. 
This is the will of God. Epaphras prayed about this in, in Colossians 4 verse 12. He labored in prayer for this. And as I always say, we need to rethink our priorities in, in, um, in prayer. Most of the stuff we pray about in our churches are, are not what we should be emphasizing on. We are praying, preoccupying or praying with that which is passing away. There's a place for it, but it's way down on the list. We're praying about health. Oh, you pray about it, but guess what? Get healthy, we're passing away. We pray about weather, good rain next week and so on. All we're praying about mostly is, is those passing away things. And we should be praying more about thy kingdom come. The future brought into the present in our lives as God's church, God's new humanity in Christ. It is that spiritual maturation which God has predestined us and so on. The outer man is passing or the inner man is being renewed day by day. It is that we pray, Lord, let me be transformed in the renewing of my mind. That should be the centrality of our prayer. But we don't do that. Look at the prayers of Paul. Uh, in, in Ephesians chapter, chapter 1 from verse 16 going on to 18, he said, pray that the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened. That's what he's praying about, spiritual stuff. And concerning the, the ages to come and this present age and so on for the church. And then um, the manifold wisdom of God in chapter 3 talks about um, his second prayer there in, in verses 14 to 19 and so on. Uh, or 20 there. His prayer is for that. That's some deep spiritual stuff. Not abstract, but spiritual realities. That is the centrality. It's kingdom-centered. Kingdom of God-centered. And so, where is masterpieces, is work of art. We're no junk. Although we see a lot of deficits and imperfections in us, we are God's masterpieces. Operate and live out of the masterpiece you are in Christ. We are complete in him, but we are maturing to fit into that completeness, which we are already. Anyway, and so let me just share something else here now. I'm just touching on some of these things, um, a breakaway session today. Um, now, let me look at something else here. So we are no, God is not a loser. God is not a failure. That is a heretic that is spewing out blasphemies. Kenneth Copeland is such a person. Then, how do you deal with people? Because many Christians are stumped. We do not know how to deal with the questions, so-called hard questions that are asked in universities and so on. There are many ways to approach this. Let me just give one little hint here and i might take up some time and close with this and i talked about adoption already anyway i touched on it but enough to make us know that is the legal side of things somebody comes to you and asks your question i might i might unpack this in a church setting on sunday before i minister but question 
question, the questions that you might ask to deal with people who need Jesus, but who would ask you the question, for example. And you see it on YouTube, you see it when it comes to um, Oprah Winfrey and others who say that, oh, Jesus Christ is not the only way. There must be many other ways to God because God is God. That is wrong. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The definite article is used. There's no other way to the Father but through Jesus. And you cannot have eternal life and eternal life is to know the Father. No one knows the Son but the Father. No one knows the Father but the Son, except those whom the Son reveals him to. So the only way you can get eternal life is to share in the same knowing, um, experiential, relational knowing that the Father has with the Son. And that is only found in Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ has that. And so people ask you, is Jesus Christ the only way that you can reach to God? And why is it that you think that Jesus Christ is, is the only, excluding all others? He is the only one. Well, here's how you could possibly answer that. You could ask back a couple of questions. Answer by asking these two questions. Do you believe that people who do wrong things should be punished? Ask that question first in this order. Do you believe that people who do wrong things should be punished? Because there's a guy named Sam Harris and on YouTube he has a case and it is stated that this argument he brought forth would stump and destroy Christianity. That's what the statement said. Here's a rubbish with that. He argued of the premise that um, he made some statistics, Sam Harris, who is an atheist, by the way. He made some arguments that, um, that 9 million children die per year under the age of 10. And he worked out how many of them die per hour and right down to per minute and so on. And these are children under 10, born in so-called innocent, and they've gone to hell and, and so on. He was re rebutting another scholar who was debating him. Now, the premise is wrong because without God creating the cosmos and humanity, there will be no existence of any cosmos or humanity. You have to begin there. If you're going to begin it, we have to start with the premise that our very existence could not have been. So God created our existence and he can do what he wants to do because all of us owe our existence to him. So it's almost as if God has no rights and we have rights to live. We only have rights to live based upon God's rights that he has given us to live. Now, let, let me just clarify a little bit more here. You ask this question because the argument is that how could be such a good God do all of these terrible things and good persons can't go to hell and so on and so on. And this hell doctrine is a big, big problem within um, liberalism and, 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 and the atheistic belief system. 
ask this question. Do you believe that people who do wrong things should be punished? And you keep quiet. Any normal person, because there's, there's what is called morality built into the, the, the most devastating, um, depraved person. Um, total depravity, according to the Westminster Catechism of Faith, um, Westminster Shorter Catechism, um, total um, depravity is not that there's no ability to do any good. We all come short of the glory of God, but not enough to save us, right? It has been warped and tarnished by the fall. But where does common, we call it um, natural revelation come from, not special revelation? Where, where does animals have the desire to love other animals? That's more than instinct. Where does um, people have this proclivity to join with other people? So even criminals, you know, they belong to a group of other criminals. And even hermits and loners belong to a group of loners, if you mean. And it goes on and on. When you fail to belong to anybody, you are diminishing your humanity. And you may associate with bad group, you are, you, are, you are drawing yourself with other humans to maximize the warpness of your humanity. But watch this, watch this. That person would answer, oh yes, if somebody does something terrible, rape somebody or commit murder, you want to even move, move out of the, the city that you live in. You want to get rid of it because you want to see justice being done with the slave trade and the sex trade and all kind of terrible things you hear happening with racism and so on. Everybody has this compass that tells them, you know, this is wrong. We don't operate by instinct. We have something inside of us, a conscience that at least can tell us what is right from wrong, even if that is warped to a great degree. So you naturally get an answer from a person. Oh, yes, naturally. So right there, they're putting everything on the table. You see, the Bible says, in, the Bible says in, um, in Proverbs 11, verse 30, that he, the one who is wise, will save lives. That could mean, it means primarily um, that God will use, will work his wisdom through you to deal with people to bring them to Christ. It's not like it's just your wisdom that you just conjure up. Is God who is wise will give you the wisdom how to deal with people in the situation. Watch this now. So that question, the person answers you, um, you, you, you're bringing them, you, you, we're, we're using what is called the, um, the Nathan principle. Because what Nathan did is that he set up David so that David, if, if Nathan had said, you are a sinner, maybe David would have killed him. But when David convicted him on self, everything changed. Now, there is a time and place where we have to do that. This is one of the methods I'm saying, all right? The spirit uses different methods. 
But this one, I believe, is what you need to keep on you. Because you're letting them put something on the table because they have come to an agreement with that. Paul used the Mars Hill 17 motif right there where um, you know, I see you believe in unknown God. You know, we use a principle where you, you meet a common ground with them, an agreement, and then you move them from that to, to Christ. So it is here. They agree that, you know, of course, somebody who does something wrong, they break some law, whatever the law is, should be punished either by capital punishment or some form of punishment. Okay. The next question you ask them, have you done wrong things? No, it's not that they are agreeing about other people in wrong. They are not agreeing that they have done wrong. No, where did they get that ability or that standard to know what is right from wrong? Who is that lawgiver? In other words, they actually condemning themselves. Have you done wrong? If they agree that, yes, anybody who does wrong is, should be punished. And now, you ask them a question, have you done wrong things? And you could, you could ask somebody who is not a Christian and say, have you, have you committed adultery? Have you, you want to get really specific and stand up if you're ready to stone you or really <laughs> call the police on you, you just hold your ground. Uh, have, have you ever, um, they don't have to answer you, but let them answer themselves. Have you um, ever thought of hitting anybody? Have you ever stolen time or anything? Have you ever robbed in any way? Have you ever committed fornication, adultery, or all form of sexual sin? In other words, you get them to see that they are in the same category of persons who qualify to be punished but no you're taking them to another level now because they might feel that oh yeah somebody bad in society needs to be punished here yeah, but why would i who do something wrong is my wrong the same as that person's wrong the thing is that i'm not caught like that person is caught but i'm wrong before a greater lawgiver and that is God. And then no, you agree with them and say, my goodness, it's bad enough news that people who do, who do good th um, bad things should be punished. Yes, they should be punished, right. And now you have done wrong things. So you're agreeing then that you should be punished too. This is where the hell factor comes in now. And then they can't say no again because they have agreed with the logic up to that point. Paul uses in so many ways. Jesus used this method too. But then another thing happens. You don't need to tell them or that person that that person is under judgment. Do you need to tell them that? No, they have already placed themselves under the judgment of that lawgiver. They just told you that they are guilty, that they deserve punishment. But then you take it to a courtroom setting now and say, okay, 
what if a judge who that person did something wrong, the judge in a courtroom now would say, would you know, pass down a verdict, guilty or not guilty, based upon the um the the the, the, the um the, the court decision, the jury. You would say no. Suppose the judge came down and shot the whole court. What? The judge would say, you know what? I'm going to do something. What if I were to take your place? I will forgive you, but I will bear your punishment for you. Would you want that? That person who did that wrong thing, no matter what it is, even if it is go to the gas chamber or the electric chair. Which criminal would say, you know, no, I will die in dead. But the judge said, no, no, I, I will take your place, whether you like it or not. Um, but you, you accept my forgiveness. You, you get the point. It's, it's a weak illustration, but the point is what I'm making. Chances are that would shock your body. Your body would, what? That's not supposed to happen. There is a, the word you have to use is, there is a substitution here. And I said, and then you say no, the judge now pauses and says, of interest to that person, benefit for that person, are you interested in a pardon? And the condition of the pardon I have met. There's an opening, an offer of forgiveness. But there's a price that is paid, a substitution. The judge substituted himself for us, and this judge is God, Jesus Christ. God has judged the world through this person, Jesus Christ. Acts 17, verses 30, 31. God has appointed a, a time in which he shall judge the world and he commands everyone everywhere to repent. God has made the substitute already. No other religion is able to make the substitute. God has accomplished this. It's called mercy. Everybody in other religion, all other religions is just achievements, but not accomplishments. And so, no one could do this, only God's Jesus Christ, the God man. He who wins souls is wise, wise with God's wisdom. There's more to this, brethren, and you can tweak it any way you want to wait. But the bottom line is that, let me reiterate, you ask the question, do you believe that people who do wrong things should be punished? Of course, everybody would say, oh, yes, man, definitely. You pause on the next question. Have you done wrong things? You might get a quietness before. You might leave it like that, but you might also probe deeper and say, well, wrong things like, and you make, make a list, you don't ask them. 
and they will, oh yes, I'm guilty for that. And the bad news is that, my goodness, not only that, people must be punished, well, that's good news, but bad for the person being punished, but also you deserve punishment. The Bible calls it hell. But there's a way out. They have condemned themselves. They have seen themselves now. They can't escape it. And now you're bringing the substitution factor. What if this judge would take the place of the guilty person? What if this God would take your place? And he has done that. It's called the doctrine of substitution. It's called the doctrine of substitution. Books just fell down. <laughs> you see, enemy trying to cause destruction. Never happened before, and this is what happened now. It's called the doctrine of substitution, where Jesus Christ died on behalf of sinners. He died for sinners. Paul said, that he is chief. No one else could do this. And so I leave you this word. Proverbs eleven thirty. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. The first part of the verse says. You bring life to people. By snatching them from the burning. This is a good evangelical outreach to deal with people on one-on-one, -on -one, encountering them. Just pick up a little argument. And even if they don't respond right away, it will never be the same. And somebody will say, another way of looking at it is like, if somebody jumps out of a plane, it's like mankind is free falling. Yes, falling, but in another sense, free falling. And he's trying to flap his wings, trying to do everything to break the fall in his own way. But God has provided a way to save mankind. And that is through Christ Jesus. The fruit, Proverbs 11, verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And the one who is wise wins souls, translations would have. We can't really win souls. It's only God can. But this verse has a fuller development in the New Testament where God would win people through us by giving us the wisdom like what Jesus had. The woman at the well Jesus didn't talk about bread when she was dealing with water. And when he was dealing with, with feeding of the, the 5,000 with the fish and the bread, he didn't talk about water at that time. So the Spirit will help us to listen to the hearts and the needs and make the application to set at captive those, to heal the brokenhearted and so on. These are, these are the different kinds of people that reflect their lostness and jesus christ is the only hope and the only way he is our hope he is our peace peace with god the same peace that 
the son has with the father, we have with the father, the peace of God. And through the spirit, we experience peace with God on a day-to-day -day basis. The same of God is a, a qualitative genitive, the same peace that God has, the same union that God has, we share that in the humanity of Jesus. And so nothing is done apart from Christ. The, 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 the church fathers used to say, there's no such thing as a nudus Christus, a naked Christ, not in the sense of physical naked, but a Christ without his people. Because when you talk about the Christ in the Bible, you see that the Bible talks about Christ, not independent of his people, but with his people. We are in Christ. We are with Christ <laughs> or within Christ and so on and so on. We get all of these prepositions. Anyway, brethren, I thought I'd just share those few thoughts with you. Um, and I trust that we benefited from this study. Help us to very Christocentric. And also I try to balance it so that we can go forth and engage with people confidently just with those right questions and emphasize the substitution where Christ died for our sins. Uh, when it, the word for um, in the Greek is a word which means instead of us, you know, um, as a substitute, he came, he intercepted as it were, the wrath of God. God. God poured out his wrath on us. He bore the punishment and the wrath of God. There's therefore no, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, outside of Christ Jesus, then there is. So you could share those scriptures with them. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for tonight's study. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to have a deeper trust in you and also a more clarity concerning our identity as your spirit has you know, persuaded us of who we really are in Christ, the spirit of truth would validate and bring clarity to the true me, the true the truth about all of us in Christ. And oh God, that we will share with others that Christ, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not holding their sins against them. There's a substitution that was done and they need to receive that, to receive forgiveness and to be partakers of the family of God in Christ. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, brethren. I'm looking forward to seeing you on the weekend, the Lord willing. And um, um, 